coming up on Philosophy Talk. I've been appointed by head office as your new country director for Kenya. Now as your director, I'm here to make that difference, that change for Africa. Foreign aid or injury? Maybe foreign aid programs don't always work exactly the way we want them to. But aren't they still deeply valuable? I've worked for my mother's NGO since I was six years old. Isn't the real question, what's the right way for developed nations to fight global poverty? Sometimes a good acronym can win a grant just like that. Take last year's winning one, for example. Building real infrastructure, bringing enterprise to societies, which is bribes, that didn't help anyone. Foreign aid or injury. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Do we have a duty to help developing nations escape poverty? Doesn't foreign aid do more harm than good? Well, is there a better way to end poverty around the world? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. And we're here in the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and where Deborah has recently become Stanford's Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Congratulations on your promotion, Deborah. Thank you. So today we're going to be thinking about the ethics of foreign aid. Well, you know, Deborah, I really don't like that term, foreign aid, because, you know, it makes it sound like we're giving, I don't know, freeloading countries undeserved handouts or something, sort of like the international version of welfare payments. But, you know, it's not a matter of charity. It's a matter of justice. We owe it to developing countries to help them escape poverty. Why do you say that? Well, because just look at what we've done to the world, Deborah. We've just spoiled the planet. We've stolen natural resources like oil and gas right out from under the noses of many foreign nations. We've propped up corrupt, oppressive regimes, funded dictators and warlords around the globe. And why did we do that? Well, not out of charity, all for our own economic gain. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. Surely you can't place all the blame for the world's ills on the United States. Well, no, I actually, I don't. You're right there. Well, there's the UK. They were at it long before we were in France and even little old Belgium. And look, all the world's colonial powers are complicit too. And you know what? We all collectively owe the developing world foreign aid, as people call it, because of what we've done to them. So you see foreign aid as a matter of compensatory justice? Ken, that's absurd. No, no. Why? Why? Because the dominant powers, you know, the ones that have usurped all the world's wealth, will never own up to their crimes? Is that it? First of all, your view of who owes foreign aid to whom is inaccurate. Not all of today's rich countries were colonizers. Well, but the colonizers among the rich countries should pay the lion's share of the burdens. You can't deny that. Why shouldn't any country with more than it needs provide aid to people in desperate circumstances? Oh, well, if they're not complicit in all this poverty, then why, why should they have to pay? Because there's a duty to rescue? 
because we have humanitarian obligations. And besides, Ken, you're just overestimating the responsibility of the rich countries for poverty. No, it sounds like you want to deny the history of colonialism and imperialism. No, I'm not denying the history of colonialism and imperialism, but I'm also not assuming that colonialism and imperialism are responsible for poverty everywhere. I mean, you're just assuming that because it fits your obsession with uh, the ills of the developed world. But, you know, we don't know what causes uh, poverty around the world. What if a country is poor because of their own mistakes or mismanagement? Look, I'm not willing to let the imperial colonial powers off the hook, but I'll play along. So what if they are? What if there are countries like that? So what? Look, it follows from your view that we don't have an obligation to help countries that have made mistakes. And and that's absurd. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're calling my view absurd? You're the one who's implying that every country with a surplus should give it to countries indeed. Now, I think a lot of people find that absurd. Look, if you think simple humanitarianism is too demanding, mm. well, here's an alternative. Let's give aid on the basis of enlightened self-interest. It's both in our economic interest to alleviate poverty around the globe, and it's a matter of national security. That's not kickable. That can't, you, that's really your answer? Enlightened self-interest? Sure. Where there are places with no opportunities, with economic insecurity, war, instability, hunger, hopelessness, that's a natural breeding ground for terrorism. So one of the best ways to tackle global terrorism and improve our security is to lift people out of poverty. Yeah, but look, look at the consequences of that. You just criticized me in my obsession with imperialism for in, being indifferent to some poor countries. But what about countries that it's not in your, our enlightened self-interest to, to aid? You can imagine such countries. Do, you, do we just ignore their plight then? Look, maybe we've hit an impasse here. Humanitarian aid falls on everyone, but it might not lead to development anyway. And neither enlightened self-interest nor compensatory justice seem to be demanding enough. Well, I I'll agree with you here. We have reached an impasse. And to help us understand the sources of this impasse, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to examine the shifting means and motives of foreign aid over time. She files this report. Starting from the top. Foreign aid begins with colonialism. Colonists put money into their colonies for one simple reason. It was their countries, don't forget. Rosalind Aben is from the University of Sussex. She's worked in international development policy and practice around the world. They were spending money on countries that they owned. Simple. So fast forward to when colonized countries start gaining their independence. Many of them demand redistribution of global resources as retribution for their exploitation. To them, foreign aid was a right not a gift. This is the Cold War, so the Soviet bloc and the Western nations are each trying to get all the developing countries on their side. Our hand of friendship is stretched out to all. One friendship does not come in the way of another. This led to a boom in development, with donor countries trying to buy support. The 1960s was called, officially by the United Nations, the development decade. Aben remembers when the first major highway was built from the coast to the capital in Sudan. As you drove along this lovely new tarmac road, people said, oh, now we're on the Yugoslav section. Oh, now we're on the <laughs> Italian bit. Aha, now it's the Chinese. And so if you were clever, you got as much money as, and support as possible from every country that was prepared to fund it. 
Aid during this time is almost by definition infrastructure and spending projects designed to stimulate the economy. The idea was get more money flowing, open up global markets, and everyone will be better off. But what people were noticing is that trickle-down wasn't working and that therefore aid should switch specifically to funding programs that targeted poor people. So, 1970s, new era. Meet the needs of the neediest, provide food, shelter, medicine, water. And this isn't politically motivated economic development. It's thinking about not just the potential foreign business partner, but his wife and child. The UN officially calls this the International Women's Decade. We women will no longer tolerate paternalism, for it deprives us of our selfhood. Some donor countries try to act out of a moral commitment, a sense of solidarity with poorer countries, a belief that global inequity requires redistribution of resources. But then comes the 80s. There's a massive global recession. Developing countries go into serious debt with donor countries, and everyone gets stingy with aid money. We cannot continue any longer our wasteful ways at the expense of the workers of this land. Instead, donors make a new deal. They say, we'll relieve your debt if you impose a new austerity budget. Only fund the bare essentials. That is, only fund the things we say you should. Now move to the 1990s, when the Cold War came to an end at the start. At that moment, there was only one player in town. It was the West. And the West is now on a mission to help strengthen democracies in developing countries, which, even when you mean well, political engineering is a dicey prospect. Pause for an example. When Aben ran the British aid office in Bolivia in the 90s, she discovered that many poor people in Bolivia didn't have ID cards and couldn't vote, particularly indigenous people who spoke languages other than Spanish. So she wanted to fund a campaign to get everyone ID cards. But the Bolivian government said, that's not our program, that's not our priority. I mean, the government was right. Foreign aid shouldn't come in and throw their weight around. On the other hand, the logic is that you could fund people to help them get a vote, and then they might vote for a more equitable, socially just government policies. Which is actually what happened in the end. Evo Morales, an indigenous man, got elected in 2005, in part because of greater access to the vote. But clearly, on the whole, Rosalind Aben agrees that foreign aid has a checkered success record at best. And today, the West is not the only player in town. Countries like Brazil, China, India, Indonesia, Turkey have all become donor countries. And according to Aben, They realized that many of the governments they were talking to wanted to go back to the good old infrastructure projects. And so we got back to supporting infrastructure for economic growth without worrying too much about the equity outcome of that. Why do governments of developing countries prefer economic growth to social spending? What government doesn't? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for supporting Philosophy Talk.